0: We're going to start off this morning with a trivia question. Maybe you can answer it, maybe you can't. Does anybody here right off the top of their heads know who the ninth president of the United States was? Anybody off the top of their heads? All right. We don't have a lot of history buffs in here, but that's okay. William Henry Harrison. Does anybody know what's particularly special about William Henry Harrison? Anybody know? He's got a what? A long name? He served only 32 days as president. The shortest tenure of a president. 32 days. He got into office and he got sick. He got pneumonia. And 32 days in office, he died. So he never got to experience the joys or the heartaches of being a president. 32 days in office. When I was in high school, I was shocked to hear the story of a young man named Len Bias. I don't know if anybody remembers Len Bias, if you follow sports. It was 1986. Len Bias was an All-American basketball player for the University of Maryland. He had just got drafted by the Boston Celtics. It was during the height of the Celtics when they were good in the 80s. Uh, Larry Bird was at his peak. This was going to be a match made in heaven. And what happened was that very day that Len Bias got drafted by the Boston Celtics, he went out, took some cocaine, and died of a heart attack. Never, ever getting to play in the NBA. Never getting to wear that green jersey and, and, and bounce the ball on the parquet floor in Boston Garden. And we can probably think of other people whose careers were either cut short by death, by an injury, or even by a scandal. Whether it's a president only serving 32 days in office or a basketball player never getting to set foot on the floor to play, it's a sad story when life is cut short. How many of you would like a second chance in life? How many of you would like to be like Groundhog Day? Remember the movie Groundhog Day where you just have one big do-over? How many of you would like the proverbial mulligan just to be able to to do it over again? A second chance. As we saw last week, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a second chance. If you remember the story from last week, Nebuchadnezzar was strutting around in pompous idolatry on the top of his roof, looking down at all the things that he had accomplished, and God humiliated him by causing him to act like an animal walking around and eating grass like a cow and and growing long hair and, and long nails. And finally, after this period of extreme degradation, he comes to his senses. Nebuchadnezzar finally repents. He finally surrenders. He calls out to the true and living God. He surrenders himself to the king and then the Lord transforms him into a new person. This was the kindness of God in allowing Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to repent. But is that always the case? Is there always a second chance? Sometimes maybe. Sometimes we don't know. What happens when a person sees the proverbial writing on the wall? What I want us to do this morning is we're going to be in Daniel, but I want to begin the sermon and I want to end the sermon by looking at a parable. Two different parables from Jesus. So before you turn to Daniel chapter 5, turn to Luke chapter 2. Both of these parables come from Luke, and as we read these parables, they kind of frame the story in Daniel chapter 5. The words of Jesus illuminate what's happening in Daniel chapter 5. So, keep your finger in Luke, we'll come back to it towards the end, but we'll begin with this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12:13 through 21. I know you got all confused this morning thinking you were going to the Old Testament, but we're going to the New. Luke 12:13 "'Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' "'But he said to him, "'Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you?' "'And he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard "'against all covetousness for one's life "'does not consist in the abundance of his possessions.' "'And he told them a parable saying, "'The land of a rich man produced plentifully.' "'And he thought to himself, "'What shall I do? "'For I have nowhere to store my crops.' jesus is telling a parable here about being complacent in our materialism getting to that point where we get prideful in our accomplishments and and relaxing and coasting and not giving god our all and and there's this parable of the rich fool Uh, god says to him you fool tonight everything you have will be taken away from you because you've just kind of cruised you've relaxed you you've said i don't have to worry about anything his life was cut short powerfully It was immediate. That very night, your soul will be required of you. This shows in powerful ways what happens to the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. And what's startling about the story with Belshazzar, as we'll see today, is God acts immediately and God acts decisively in this judgment. shows very little patience for his rebellion and idolatry. Now let me set you the stage for Daniel chapter 5. So let's turn over to Daniel chapter 5. It's 23 23 years later from last week. Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene. His grandson, Belshazzar, is the new king. Now, in your scriptures, it may say son and father. There's been a lot of scholarly archaeological debate. Actually, if you go back and look at the historical records, you find out that Nebuchadnezzar was actually the grandfather of, of Belshazzar. Sometimes in the scriptures in the Old Testament, when they would call um, someone father, it could also mean their grandfather or their great-grandfather. So uh, Belshazzar is actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It's 23 years later after this episode where Nebuchadnezzar was acting like a cow, eating the grass. Daniel's now probably in his late 70s, early 80s. He's, He's becoming an older man. We're towards the tail end of Daniel's ministry. Remember, it started when he was a teenager. And so what I want us to notice from Daniel chapter 5 are four huge issues surrounding the story. And for alliteration purposes, you know, I'm not big on alliteration. They all start with G, okay, to help you remember. Just in case, you know, we've got to throw in alliteration about every two years or something. Are you ready? Here we go. First of all, gross idolatry gross idolatry let's read daniel chapter 5 1 through 9 and see the gross idolatry daniel chapter 5 king belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand belshazzar when he had tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords his wives and his concubines might drink from them Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. There's a new king on the throne, Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And from the very beginning, we see this display of gross idolatry. It's shameless self-promotion is really what he's doing. What's he doing here? He's bringing in thousands of these people to have this great feast where he can, he can show off in front of all of them. It's self-promotion. This is theatrics. He's being the, the, the prima donna. It's almost like the Academy Awards where the red carpet's rolled out and everybody walks by with their tuxedos and their evening gowns so that the paparazzi can take pictures of them. It's shameless self promotion where the king is wanting all the attention upon himself. He's the diva, he's the rock star, he's the the athlete that wants all the attention. And he's not that great of a king when you think about it. Who did all the work in the kingdom? His grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, was the one that conquered lands, built the tower, the the hanging gardens, made a name for himself. The the, the king Nebuchadnezzar really did some things as a king, but but all this king Belshazzar really knows how to do is, is party. In our modern day, he probably would have a bumper sticker on the back of his chariot that said, party till you puke or something like that. He's partying. Let's party. He's like the rich young fool in the parable. So shameless self-promotion. I'm going to invite all these thousands of people. We're going to have this gross, idolatrous feast. But then he does something very um, desecrating. He desecrates the gifts of God. What does he do? He takes the gold and silver goblets, the gold and silver cups that were taken out of the temple many, many years before when Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked Jerusalem, and he brings them out and starts drinking wine in the holy and devoted vessels that were used specifically for temple worship. Now, why did he do this? It wasn't as if Jerusalem was any longer a threat. They'd been conquered years ago. I mean, this this is the height of blasphemy, this king. I'm going to take what is holy, the articles from the temple and I will profane them at an orgy with drunkenness. This was the height of blasphemy. He knew what he was doing. He showed no restraint. Shameless self-promotion. Shameless desecration. But he's also giving praise to idols. Notice what it says in verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. They're, they're, they're praising false gods. Instead of worshiping the true God that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way to do, they are praising all these false gods, drinking wine, getting drunk. As a matter of fact, there's shameless drunkenness going on. The word tasted wine or the word wine shows up five times in the first three verses. So what this king is doing, he's promoting himself, he's having an orgy, he's having this huge feast to himself with thousands of people there desecrating the the the, the articles from the temple in, in blasphemous drunkenness it's a banquet of iniquity this was a party of idolatry proverbs eighteen twelve says this before destruction a man's heart is haughty but humility comes before honor question we've got to ask what we saw last week nebuchadnezzar was humiliated in order to be risen back up in transformation will this same thing happen to Belshazzar? will he repent will he surrender will he show any contrition what's the flight the fate of this pleasure-seeking king what's the handwriting on the wall for him literally you know this is where we get the expression handwriting on the wall when we say you've seen the writing on the wall what does it mean in our culture Something bad's going to happen. Uh, Your fate is sealed. Doom and gloom are right around the corner. You can't stop what's going to happen. The handwriting's on the wall. And literally, a hand comes out and starts writing on the wall. And I want you to notice the words immediately. Verse 5, immediately. Because this is very crucial to this story. Immediately, the, the handwriting comes out and starts writing on the wall. And the king's color changes. He gets as white as a sheet and then our english translations are very safe they're very sanitary when it says his knees knocked together i'm gonna have to be as um well let me just tell you what it means it means the king wet his pants he went into a convulsion where his bladder went out of control that's the real translation of that word he is shocked he's scared (laughs) He looks at this handwriting on the wall. And so we've got to ask a question. Is he going to get bothered by this the way King Nebuchadnezzar was and, and just kind of pay lip service to what's happening? Is he really going to change? Is there going to be any contrition? Is there going to be any, any surrender? What's going to happen? He was scared to death, but does it change anything? So the first thing we see here is gross idolatry. The second big issue we see is a grievous memory. A grievous memory. Let's continue reading the story and find out why his memory is so grievous. Verse 10. The queen, and by the way, this is probably the queen mother, not his wife, but probably most scholars believe it's probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife. So the queen mother, she comes in. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared... O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have brought it in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him. The interpretation. Who does the king bring in first? All the astrologers. It's amazing. Who's been forgotten? Daniel's been forgotten. This man who was one of the highest positions in the government is now relegated to a has-been. He's been forgotten and the queen mother has to come in and basically rebuke her grandson and say there's this guy Daniel who your father kind of promoted because he was a really powerful man you've forgotten about him but he can come in he's interpreted dreams on two occasions by the way why have you forgotten about him and she wasn't quite sure what was special about Daniel but in verse 12 it says he had an excellent spirit within him That'll show up again next week in chapter 6. He had an excellent spirit. Now we know that Daniel was a very articulate man. We know that Daniel was a very educated man. We know he was wise. We know Daniel had a lot of um, influence. But we know that everything that Daniel was came from the fact that the Holy Spirit was living inside Daniel. The Holy Spirit was prompting him. The Holy Spirit was guiding him. And so, ultimately, Daniel's maturity, his wisdom, his ability to be a leader was because the Holy Spirit was found in him. But the king is kind of suspicious to this. He's a has-been, this Daniel. Notice how the king refers to him. The king's actually being kind of condescending, kind of rude. Look what he says in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to him, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles. You're that Daniel, the slave, the exile. Not Daniel the statesman. Not Daniel the one that had been promoted. Not Daniel the one that was esteemed of the nation. You're that Daniel. You're the exile. You're the slave. Doesn't quite, it kind of puts him in his place. And then he doesn't really even believe Daniel. Look at verse 14. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. I've kind of heard about you Daniel, but I'm not sure now wait a minute hadn't everybody heard of Daniel hadn't he seen the stories of probably his his grandfather telling him as he's growing up about how this Daniel interpreted dreams on two occasions how this Daniel was was this wise man I've heard about this Daniel I've heard about you but I'm not really sure who you are this Daniel and then the king does something very interesting he tries to buy off Daniel what does he do hey, Daniel, if you can tell me the interpretation of the dream, I'll give you a purple cloth, a golden chain, and I'll make you third in the kingdom. Let me kind of butter you up here. He's trying to buy him off. And it's very interesting here, because in chapters 1 through 4, what have we seen about Daniel? He's been pretty respectful, right? He's been pretty wise. He's been pretty polite. He's been firm, but he's been pretty polite. Well, now he's an 80-year-old man, and he's losing patience, So all of the decorum goes out the window, all the politeness, and Daniel finally gets to the punch. and, And notice what he says in verse 17. Let your gifts be to yourself, king. You can keep your gifts. I'm not interested in your gifts. I'm not interested in the purple cloth. I'm not interested in the gold chains. I'm not interested. I can't be bought, king. God's gifts can't be bought. I serve the living God, and it's an insult for you to come and try to buy me. I won't be bought. He's a man of principle. He's a man of integrity. He's a humble man. So we've seen a gross idolatry, we've seen a grievous memory. Now let's look at the glaring judgment. The glaring judgment. 18. Let's pick up in verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that with wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lord, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Oftentimes you see this in Old Testament prophets. They come in like a, like a lawyer, like a trial lawyer, and they start bringing all the evidence out in the open. And that's what Daniel does. He basically starts bringing the evidence out to King Belshazzar. And the first thing he says is, Belshazzar, God is sovereign. God is the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, the kingdom. God is the one that set his kingdom up. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar has is by divine right. Don't you remember that everything in this kingdom is because a sovereign God has allowed it to happen? And then he has to kind of remind him of what happened with his grandfather. Don't you remember Belshazzar? How Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, had to go eat grass like a cow and be humiliated and, then, and because he lifted himself up in pride and God humiliated him, and, and then finally he humbled and turned himself to God. He eventually repented, he saw that, that the king, the true king was not Nebuchadnezzar, but the true king was the God of heaven, the most high God. He repented, he surrendered. Didn't you see that? And here's the most radical thing that happens in verse 22. Daniel cuts right to the punch and says, Belshazzar, you knew all this. You knew this. You saw what happened to your grandfather. You knew it. You know what happens when people lift themselves up against God. You know what happens when people are prideful. You've seen it firsthand and you knew it. But what happened? You blasphemed God. You dug your heels in belligerently and you disobeyed God. You defied God. You were idolatrous. You did not repent. You are not worshiping the God of heaven. And there's something interesting at the verse, end of verse 23. He says, The God in whose hand is your breath. Belshazzar, everything that you have, your very breath is because God has given you that Breath. So hold, hold on to that breath, because that breath may not be there. Your life is but a vapor. You're like a mist. God gives you life. God gives you everything. But you have not honored this God. At the end of verse 23, you've not honored this God. You've not given proper weight to this God. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans one through 21-23. Paul describes the heart of those that have totally abandoned God. Notice what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now this is where the sin of Belshazzar is very dangerous. Because he's not sinning in ignorance. It's not like he didn't know. You know, there's some types of sins we sin in ignorance, but he's sinning knowing exactly what he's doing. It's as if he's saying, God, I know what happened to my grandfather. I know what you say, but I'm going to shake my fist at you, God, and do what I want to do regardless of the outcome. God, you can go have a good life, but I don't want anything to do with you. This is obstinate, willful, cold-hearted rebellion against the living God. And so Daniel explains the handwriting on the wall. Let's look at verse 24. I mean, King Belshazzar, notice what it says. Just one more thing. Verse 23, you've lifted yourself up against God. You've set yourself up against God. You've opposed God. You've gone against God. That word against is pretty strong. You've gone against God. Now let's, let's see the, the, the interpretation. Let's look at verse 24. Those words, mene, tekel, and and uh, perez, sound like the words that they mean in the Aramaic language. So mene, mene is God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 of the big statue, and then then his was the head of gold, and next would be the arms and chest of, of bronze? Basically, what the dream means is that this new kingdom's coming in. Your, your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Babylon is no longer going to exist. Tekel, you've been weighed and found wanting, King Belshazzar. You're a pitiful runt of a man that doesn't amount to anything. Now, this is so ironic, because how did the king esteem himself? What did he just do? Throws a party with a thousand people to all show honor to himself and in the king's mind he's probably thinking if there's anybody weighed on the scales who's all that it's me and it says there you've been weighed and found wanting you're not all that king you're not all that as a matter of fact you're bankrupt in God's scales in God's economy Belshazzar you are morally bankrupt you don't amount to anything Instead of humbling yourself and repenting and realizing that you've offended this God and surrendered to to him like your grandfather did, you don't do that. Perez. The last word just simply means divided. The word Perez means divided, but it also sounds like Persia. The Medes and the Persians are coming in. Babylon is no longer going to be a power. Medes and Persians are coming in. It's the next world empire on the scene under King Darius. What's the fourth issue we see? the gravity of defiance. The gravity of defiance. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And this is kind of a shocking turn of events here. You'd think after the handwriting on the wall and the explanation of the dream, the king would repent. The king would seek the face of the Lord. It's almost as if he doesn't bat an eye. It's almost as if he doesn't blink. He just basically says, okay, Daniel, here's the robe. Here's the chain. You're third in the kingdom. Remember what Daniel said. You can keep that. I don't want that. He even goes against Daniel's wishes. He's blind. He's calloused. Let me share to you a very important passage of Scripture in Hebrews that really talks about blindness, hardness, sin. Hebrews three twelve through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That describes Belshazzar. Evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called a day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word hardened is an interesting word. Sclerino. We get the word in English sclerosis. Let me ask you a question What is atherosclerosis? Does anybody know? It's the hardening of the arteries. It's when all that fat and bad cholesterol gets in your arteries and it calcifies and it, and it clogs up your arteries so that blood can't flow to your vital organs and eventually you'll have a heart attack or you have a stroke. It's called the hardening of the arteries. That's what that Greek word there means, a hardening, a hardening. But what are you hardened to? You become hardened because sin deceives you. And just as bad cholesterol can lead to the hardening of the arteries, sin can lead to the hardening of your heart against the living God. I mean, what did we see last week? I mean, this was the ultimate humility. King Nebuchadnezzar being taken to the lowest point, he finally repents and says, okay, I give up, God. I surrender. You're the king. He's given a second chance. Does his grandfather or grandson follow in his grandfather's footsteps? Do we see the same pattern from Belshazzar? Proverbs 29.1 says this, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You get that? If you're warned and corrected over and over again, but you still obstinately stiffen your neck and say, I'm not going to do anything about it, you'll be broken beyond healing. Proverbs 1, 26 through 29. This is what God says. I also will laugh at your calamity, I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And here's what's scary about the story of Belshazzar. That judgment was immediate. That very night. Now here's what historians tell us. Historians tell us this, while he was having this big party, he was so oblivious to what was going on. That very night, the Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon, ransacked it, and killed him that very night. While he's eating, drinking, and being merry, soul relax. I don't need to worry about anything. That very night, his life was taken. What does Psalm 90 verse 12 say? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Our days are numbered. Will we be wise? Now, let's round this message out with another parable from Jesus, okay? So, turn back to Luke chapter 14 this time. Remember the first parable the parable of the rich fool. Eat, drink, be merry. His life was taken from him. This is a banqueting table. King Darius is having this feast, this banquet with thousands of people showing up. It's a banquet of iniquity. It's a banquet of idolatry. Let's turn to Luke 14 and see a different type of banquet. Luke 14, 12. Luke 14, 12. This is another parable from Jesus. He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many and at the time for the banquet he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited come for everything's now ready but they all alike began to make excuses the first said to him i bought a field i must go in, out and see it please have me excused another said i've bought five yoke of oxen and i go to examine them please have me excused another said i've married a wife and therefore i cannot come so the servant came and reported these things to his master then the master of his house became angry And said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is a different type of banquet that Jesus is talking about. It's not a banquet for the rich and famous. It's not a banquet of pride and iniquity. It's a banquet for those who are lame, blind, poor, and beggars. Those who are spiritually understanding what they are before the living God. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who realize that they are bankrupt. Those that have been weighed on the scales and know that there's nothing they can contribute to their salvation. Only those that come and repent. Only those that come and humble themselves. Only those that come and surrender to the living God. Only those that say, if Christ should not save me, I will spend eternity in hell. And there's no reason why these people would have been invited to the feast. There's nothing in them. I mean, they were the lowest of the low. And we as sinners... There's no reason why God would save us. But He does in His great love because He wants to invite us to the banquet feast because He knows that we can't save ourselves. Think about Jesus for a moment. Was He ever rich and famous? Did He ever have a red carpet with the Hollywood paparazzi there to have a big party for Himself to draw all the attention to Himself? Was He like Belshazzar that wanted all the attention on Himself? Think about Jesus. When His life was weighed in the balances, Unlike Belshazzar and unlike us, when we're weighed, what do we find? Wanting. When Jesus' life is weighed, perfect, perfect Lamb of God, qualified to go to the cross and die for our sins because He is perfect. And when Jesus throws the ultimate banquet... There's going to be the ultimate banquet at the end of the age, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus will have all those who have repented, who've humbled, who've come to him in brokenness, those will be the ones at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So here's the question for you this morning. Which banquet are you living for? Which banquet do you wish you were invited to? Are you hoping to have a place at the banquet table of Belshazzar? All the pride, all the opulence, all the fun, all the glitz and the glamour that this world has to offer. You see, there's a danger in being tempted by the table of Belshazzar. Let me just tell you, the table of Belshazzar looks fun. It looks inviting, and it probably is. Don't let anybody ever lie to you and say sin is not fun. Sin is fun for a season, for a period. But then you reap what you sow. For many people, they are tempted by the banquet spread of Belshazzar. They want to be at that table. As opposed to the table of the true king, Jesus. Have you fixed your eyes on the banquet table of Jesus who frees you to worship him? Jesus gives you all the satisfaction, all the joy, all the hope, all the purpose. Don't be like the foolish man that said, Eat, drink, and be merry. Because you may not know what your life will be. Find true satisfaction in Jesus. In his famous sermon called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said these words. And this is so true. Lewis said, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you see the analogy he's using here? This little kid's playing with mud in the slums, thinking, this is it. This is life. This is cool. This is where I'm at. This is everything that this life has to offer. And right behind him is this beautiful, pristine ocean where you can go play in the surf and soak in the sun, and it's beautiful. But instead of seeing that, he's content with being amused with just making mud pies in the slum. And, and what Lewis is saying is that's us sometimes. We're so amused with making mud pies with the things this world has to offer. We amass all the things in this slum when Christ stands behind us as this huge ocean of joy and satisfaction and purpose and meaning. And we're so easily amused with the slums and the mud pies that we have no clue what Jesus has to offer us. Ultimate joy, everlasting joy. Which table will you eat at? Which table offers you eternal life? Which table offers you eternal joy. Will you eat at the kingdom of Belshazzar? Or will you eat at the kingdom of Jesus? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.